watchers in the fourth dimension. I don't like your person or your hair. Have you no emotion, sir? It is quite useless to resist us. We must be obeyed. I don't like your tune, sir. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And look, there's a woman. A woman? Hey, hey, mamma mia! <laughs> well, this episode we're off to the South Pole, where our intrepid heroes battle a vampiric planet and a group of cybernetic monstrosities. And it also happens to be the debut story of a couple of staples of the show's lore. Yes, it's the Tenth Planet! This story was originally pitched to script editor Jerry Davis by the show's new scientific advisor, Dr. Kit Pedler. The original pitch featured a group of space monks from Earth's hitherto unknown twin planet who were draining energy from a space capsule. You can kind of see how this ended up. Davis didn't like the idea of space monks and encouraged Pedler to look to his own field. Pedler was interested in cybernetics and took that to its logical extreme with this story and created the Cybermen. The rest, as they say, is history. Soon after being commissioned to write the scripts, Pedler fell ill, and Jerry Davis stepped in to help write the scripts. They tag-teamed with Davis writing the first and final drafts, and Pedler reviewing and refining the second drafts. Since at this time script editors weren't permitted to write on the shows that they worked on, the BBC granted special permission for Davis to be credited as co-writer on episodes 3 and 4. Of course, this is perhaps best known as the first Doctor's final story. Technically, William Hartnell's contract had expired at the end of the third recording block with the Smugglers, and he was brought in as a guest star for this serial. Davis and Lloyd came up with the idea that since he was the, an alien, the Doctor could die and return in a new body. They described this as a metaphysical change. More on that next episode. Derek Martinez was given the honour of directing this story, and it was his third time working on the show, having previously directed Galaxy 4 and Mission to the Unknown. During production, William Hartnell fell ill with bronchitis and Martinez had to work creatively to complete the majority of episode 3 without him and gave most of his lines to Ben. No music was composed specifically for this story and Martinez turned to the BBC's stock music library, which, let's be honest, is a far better proposition than having no music at all. Looking at you, the smugglers. <laughs> <clears throat> working on this story as designer was Peter Kindred, and this was his first time working on the show. He will return once more for season 5's Fury from the Deep, and he is notable for working on Adam Adamant Lives, Paul Temple, and Faulty Towers. Working alongside him as costumer was Sandra Reed. This was her first time working on the show, although she'll continue to work on costumes through the remainder of season 4 and into season 5. With that wrapping up our behind-the-scenes segment, we move on to our short summary, which is actually in my hands this time around. Our TARDIS crew arrive in the South Pole and team up with a group of international stereotypes, including a trigger-happy American general, a randy Italian, and a nervous Brit, to defeat a group of Cybermen held together with nothing but duct tape. <laughs> William Hartnell gets one final week off, resulting in Ben becoming a scientific <laughs> genius, before the plot resolves itself on its own, and this strange thing that we now know as regeneration happens to the Doctor. Time for a new face, Doc. Let's talk about this. Did anyone else find that the video quality of the first three complete episodes seemed much better than usual? Maybe it's because we're coming off the smugglers, but I don't know. It just seemed very refreshing and pleasing to my eyes. The DVD of this, which is where that footage came from, was one of the final releases in the range. It had probably the most up-to-date restoration techniques on it, so they, they really did a good job at cleaning this one up. Yeah, it, looks, it really yeah. looks smooth and gorgeous. Mm -hmm. 
Speaking of how everything looks, those computerized title cards with the tenth planet and and the letters and so on. I love that. Yeah, I did enjoy it. I love that. It, it felt like a sequel to the War Machines. Did they adjust the theme music a little bit? Did they add like a little Cyberman kind of mix to it or something? It sounded a little different to me. It was on the title cards rather than the theme music. Actually, I think I think on the end they add. Yeah, on the ending, uh, on the closing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, there's the little blip 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 blip. Yeah, that was more in the yeah. It was more in the closing than it was in the opening card. And then with the opening card, I think they just added on to the very very end. But yeah, I I did like the the beginning. One thing I really love about this story, and and they do it right from the beginning, is they they give it this international feel. And I I made fun of it by talking about international stereotypes, but that's one way of establishing the characters. Between the snowcap base, which is clearly meant to be manned by the UN, and then the scenes in Geneva, it gives it a much grander scale than anything that we're really used to in terms of an earthbound story before. It gives it a larger scale and it also moves in the direction that you think it would. Um, Because the way that I look at it is a lot of those places, especially like South Pole, you look at the International Space Station, things like that, where you do have a more international group of people working together. So I kind of really liked that they did that. Maybe a little bit stereotyped, but how better to do that to get it across very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, it made it feel like a worldwide problem and not just this tiny isolated thing going on in the base. I wonder if it provided maybe a sense into, uh, you know, it gave an optimistic kind of future depicted. I know in the story it takes place in 1986, but I couldn't help but think of what Roddenberry was famous for, of diverse group of people of races and nations, you know, working together on a ship. And so it's kind of like the same thing here, but I don't know if that's exactly what they were aiming for. I think they were maybe going a little more basic with it, but I, I got that kind of vibe from it. Yeah, I see that. It's, it's really a shame there's no Russian on the base to take the Chekhov role to show everyone's, <laughs> yeah. everyone's oh. happy. We're all a happy human family. Have you noticed at the uh, end of the credits, I mean, at the ending credits of the first episode, when they list out the characters, they just give their last name, obviously, because it's military. They're located in the South Pole. Also, there's creatures coming from, out, you know, some, a visitor coming from outer space. All things very similar to The Thing, except The Thing, of course, was not in the South Pole. I couldn't get that connection out of my mind of like The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing, and this. I also do like some of the stereotypes that they had of the men, though, because you had the pictures on the walls that were very, you know, mm. <clears throat> yep. very specific. And then, you know, obviously them getting very excited to see a woman, which to be fair, if it's a group of men who have been stuck in a place, who knows how long they've been there. It could have been months. It could have been years. Who knows? Yeah, that's generally what I hear is the attitude is, oh, my <laughs> goodness, there's a girl. And she makes yeah. excellent coffee, too. She does. <laughs> And she has fab legs. Who else was making the coffee beforehand? They had no one to make the coffee for it before until she showed up, right? Well, it was an excuse to keep the woman in in, in view. <laughs> That's all it was, is because, oh, well, it's, it's less about the coffee. It's because there's a girl behind it. But speaking of that, one, I love that, you know, when we get to the TARDIS crew, they make the comments about the doctor's wardrobe, which continues to be a highlight for me. I love whenever they when they do that. And we get another excellent hat for the doctor. 
<laughs> Which that is... hat, along with the cloak and the scarf, that's the same combination he was wearing in the very first episode. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's some really nice symmetry there. His first appearance and his last appearance. I really liked that. Yeah, I've, I always felt really good for them to bring the hat back. Did anyone else find it funny that when they went out to Ben and Polly and the Doctor, they went out with rifles? Yes. After they already identified them as civilians? Well, this is a serious situation. They saw the three of them, but they don't know how they got there. There could have been more people out there, and maybe there was some threat that they didn't know about. It seemed more scientific, but there are enough military aspects to this that I'm not surprised that they would go out there with weapons. Gotta be safe out there, Riley. Don't know when those penguins might attack. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did anyone catch the what I thought was the dunk of the cereal, in which, as, the, as I think it was Custer... Cutler. Cutler, excuse me. Yes, right. You're, I'm sorry. When he was shouting around at everyone, and then the doctor says at the very end, just flatly, why don't you speak up? I'm deaf. Oh, yeah. yeah. That was great. So well delivered. I mean, I think that's one of the things that Hartnell had such brilliant comedic timing. And in a story like this, where there isn't a lot of comedy, moments like that get really overlooked. Well, yeah. I mean, the comedy is pretty much gone after the first half of the first episode. I mean, after yeah. that, it's it's all just a peril after peril or people <laughs> dying in outer space or about to die in outer space. For the most part, so was the Doctor. He really did feel like a guest star in his own final serial. That really wasn't helped by the fact that Hartnell was ill and couldn't be in episode three. What I felt is that the first two episodes didn't really clue you into the fact that he was possibly leaving. I mean, if you picked up on the wardrobe, maybe you would kind of figure that out. But it wasn't until he started feeling ill, which was towards the end of episode two, I believe, before you even thought that maybe something was going on. That's true. It doesn't feel like what we would normally view as a as a doctor's final story, where it's set up yeah. and you mm-hmm. have a lot of heavy drama. It, it almost there's little hints here and there, but it mostly just sort of happens. I think for me, and, and this is looking back at it with you know, nearly 60 years of show to look back on. The the biggest clue is is really we've had a changing of the guard behind the scenes. So we've gone from Verity to John Wiles, who Peter Purvis didn't <laughs> like very much, to Innes Lloyd. The Lloyd era so far, we've had the War Machines, which we saw the first Doctor on Contemporary Earth, didn't really feel like a first Doctor story. And here we have the first Doctor in the not-too-distant future facing down military men. Again, doesn't quite feel like what we've been used to with the show so far. So there's clearly... Maybe I'm looking back at it with 2020 vision here, but there's there's something that's a bit off in terms of the general vibe of the Hartnell era, in my opinion. One of the things I've noticed is it seems a bit more technology-based than maybe a lot of the others. And especially in the 60s, there was a certain idea around technology that I think is being expressed here. So it feels more, to a degree, militaristic, which is not necessarily how I like Doctor Who to be, um, and how the first doctor was not so i think that might add to it let's talk about the plot a little bit we're faced with this situation where they're trying to land this space capsule and it comes under the influence of an external force did anyone find that that was what they cared about with this story or was kind of knowing what was coming if you did know the overriding factor I was trying not to think about the fact that a lot of the stuff didn't make a whole lot of sense as far as, oh, hey, suddenly there's another planet. And then they were arguing over whether or not it looked like Earth, even though it clearly did. 
that seemed like a really weird addition. And I believe what they said it was location was between, was it Venus and Mars, which is where Earth is? It just seemed a really <laughs> weird way of putting that. It was on, it was always on the opposite side, perfectly opposite side of the same orbit as Earth, right? So I, that you I could guess. never see it because the sun was always in the way. The whole thing just seemed like... <laughs> Okay, so a few episodes ago, we had them hauling out the planet to drive it around, and now we have another planet just showing up and sucking all the energy out. Well, they made mention that that what they had done is they had taken that planet and they had moved it and were, like, searching other parts of the galaxy with it and then were coming back. Yeah. The Cyberman had figured out how to move a planet already. And it's like, why were the Daleks trying to do that when you already had a planet that moved? So there's a wonderful big Finnish story called Spare Parts, which is kind of what happens on Mondas. And it, it talks about how Mondas basically breaks free almost on its own and, and goes off and what the people on Mondas have to do to in order to survive, which leads to their eventual becoming of the Cyberman. It's very, very well done. Highly recommended, but gives you the idea that Mondas kind of got slung off somehow and has drifted through the universe until it almost circles back to Earth at, by this time whether or not people think that's canon is a different matter it's just that part of the plot i found a little bit crazy which was made worrisome by the fact that mr insano general actually said that's ridiculous to the plot <laughs> so i'm like i'm with you you're you're crazy and angry but i'm with you on that <laughs> yeah just just a little bit crazy and angry while all of this is going on, obviously the climax of episode one is the it's up there with the cliffhanger from the first episode of the Daleks in terms of introducing an iconic monster, for want of a better term, in, in the Cybermen. And you first see them walking across the wasteland of the South Pole and you're really just left thinking, what the hell is that? And then we pan up to that blank face of a Cyberman and... It's what Sandifer describes as being clipothic existential horror. Again, I think that's another iconic cliffhanger moment, seeing that blank cloth face. I think that's just wonderful and very, very well done. Yeah, and also I think what's so striking about the imagery is that you see a creature that shows to be so technologically advanced among frozen tundra, frozen ice, is just not something you would necessarily imagine, but that's what makes it so striking because of how unusual it all is. Just to clarify something that happened during that scene, were they stealing the corpse's clothes to try and blend in? Yes. Do they realize they have air conditioners <laughs> strapped to their chests and are really not going to blend in? <laughs> apparently not, and apparently no one else noticed either. <laughs> yeah, so there was there was that. I have comments about them being so much more advanced when they move so slow. They're made of metal, so I'm surprised they didn't start to rust in the snow. Their speech pattern was so incredibly slow, but by the time they made their actions known, people on Earth could have done anything within the time it took for them to speak. So it's just like, there's certain aspects of it where I'm like, okay, so they have these special guns that can kill us. Headlights from a, from a Buick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But what really is it that makes them so much more advanced? I struggled there. They've got built-in Wi-Fi? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Talking about the voice, did anyone else think that the lead Cyberman sounded like Michael Palin doing like a bit on Monty Python? <laughs> I could not get it out of my head. I don't know. See, the whole thing with the voice to me is it kind of goes back to what I find scary about the Cybermen is that they're this weird parody almost of humanity. They, they've removed 
all of the things that make us human. And when he talks, the mouth doesn't really move. It's just opening it up like a like a speaker. And it's just weird. Like like a doll. Yeah. Like like how people are afraid of dolls. And the original idea for the voice wasn't this kind of overly modulated voice we got, but it was going to be like lots of different little uh, clips from radio broadcasts. Interesting. That was the original idea, and for whatever reason, they decided they couldn't make it work and went with what we got, which I really loved the Cyberman voices in this. I think they're so creepy, that kind of sing-songy tone that's very heavily modulated. I, I... I've always loved it. I don't necessarily like the sing-songy aspect, mainly because since they're machines, that just seems like... They're not entirely machines, though. I mean, even their their outfit isn't metal. It looks more like like bandages. Yeah, it's cloth and it's a little bit of metal, a little bit of plastic. Yeah, I mean, there's just this weird combination of, of flesh and plastic and cloth... And it's like, okay, well, what's what's left in there? What's really under that mask? <laughs> and one thing I hadn't noticed, because I think this is the first time I've really seen it on a big screen. I, I remember watching it on something a lot smaller when it first came out on VHS. In the close-ups, and I don't think this was intentional, you can kind of see the actor's eyes behind there mm-hmm. as well, which really adds to how creepy that looks. My main comment could be for episode one or episode two, which is I really need Ben and Polly to do anything. (laughs) You mean beyond make coffee? Yes. What I've been struggling with recently with some of this is that either the doctor does everything. So why are the companions ever there? Or the companions do all the things and the doctor doesn't do anything. So why is the doctor there? It seems like it kind of has been going back and forth between who's contributing to the story and it doesn't seem as as integrated as it had been in previous seasons. Yeah, I think Julie's absolutely right with that. I mean, that seems to be an issue that's been going on for a while now on the show with the first Doctor, is that the first Doctor seems so separated from the rest of the TARDIS crew and that there is no integration between them. And so it just feels so separated and it just doesn't feel like... I know to me, I always... One of the real interesting things to Doctor Who to me is, you know, you have such an interesting character Doctor Who, but what's more interesting is how regular human beings react to the Doctor and how different those reactions can be and how different those personalities can react with someone like the Doctor. As Julie was saying, it just it feels so separated here. I think that's really an unfortunate effect of what was going on behind the scenes with William Hartnell getting increasingly sick and getting increasingly distant from initially the production team and then his latest set of co-stars. I think it's really the unfortunate side effect of that and it's really starting to manifest on screen by this point. So let's talk about some international television news in episode two. Let's do it. (laughs) Episode two. I particularly enjoyed the fact that in the newscast, their main message was, don't worry about this new planet that showed up. It won't crash into us. That's the only thing you have to be worried about. Good night, everybody. (laughs) It's fine. New planets show up all the time. Well, I mean, isn't that what the government is there for is to say, calm down. Everything's going to be okay. Keep calm and carry on. (laughs) (laughs) That's what governments have been trying to do for years. Come on. I do love that they're using the media broadcast again. You know, that was something we saw really for the first time in the War Machines, and it's being brought back here. I think it's a really clever narrative device in a Doctor Who story, and it just works so well. 
It brings it all home. I like to have the stories feel that they're personal, but also at the same time, these are happening in places where other people are affected. So it's nice to get a little glimpse of it. A radio broadcast or TV broadcast works really well for that. Completely agree. The interesting thing about the way this story is structured is the Cybermen are only really present in episodes two and four for the most part. So episode two is where we get a lot of the meat of who are they? Where did they come from? Are they genuinely a threat? And so the nature of this episode to me really is about them and introducing them. And I don't know, and I probably should know, but I don't know off the top of my head whether they had already decided they were coming back or whether they were just a one-off and they felt they needed to give all of this exposition. It could have been so clumsy, giving all of this exposition in episode two, have you no emotions, sir, all of that. But I just think somehow it works. And they kind of let them win that that little argument with Polly. They do. Which was, I thought, had a, a really great effect. And he's like, well, there are people dying all over your planet. Why don't you care about them? Yeah, there there was that. I think they spaced it out fairly well between some of the episodes, because while you say, yes, they were only really in, what, two and four, but also at the same time, you don't need them to be in every episode. Bring them in when they need to either prove some point or if they're driving the plot along. But if they were there for all four episodes, you wouldn't see how the humans interacted with each other and how they tried to solve it because they wouldn't have a chance to try to solve the problem. So I think it was a smart idea to keep them to limited screen time. Although you have to admit in this episode, it was kind of funny because the best way to solve the problem apparently would have been to not try and solve the problem. (laughs) (laughs) Am I reading that wrong? Because I I could be. I will really admit it. I think that's the interesting thing. Fundamentally, the way to save the world is to do nothing. But we're also focused with that problem of the people on the space capsules. That's where that problem of, okay, you can do nothing and the big picture solves itself, but what about what's going on with the space capsule? Obviously here that issue is lost because the space capsule explodes. But then when we get round two of that and it turns out to be Cutler's son in the later episodes, the stakes are a little higher because it's someone who's a direct relative of someone on the snowcap base. It goes from being these two random people to being someone who's a direct relative of someone we've been interacting with through the story so far. But it was General Crazy Pants, so I didn't really I know. care. That's what made it harder. But he was in charge, essentially, so it makes sense that that would drive the plot that way he didn't feel in charge though because he just always felt very unhinged there's those who are in charge and there are those who are actually in charge I think that's where this story got it slightly wrong because they painted him as this very stereotypical, brash, loud, obnoxious American general who gave zero shits about anyone in episode one. By the time it comes to be his son being launched into space to try and rescue the first capsule, which has already exploded, you just don't really care because he's an asshole. (laughs) And it just seems (laughs) unprofessional more than anything else. If he had been a super professional, super competent leader, as opposed to what he was presented as, and he starts losing it when he realizes it's his son up there and his son's life, it would have made that so much more effective. No, I guess if Riley's not going to do it, I will. He went so far around the bend, it started to remind me of Dr. Strangelove. (laughs) Yes, I got that vibe. 
I guess it's close, you know, General Ripper, General Cutler. (laughs) General Cutlery. Cut and rip. I don't know. Cutting slightly cleaner. Yeah. I do love that Cutler, on a show that has had difficulties finding American actors or English actors do sound American, this guy playing Cutler, I mean, he was straight out of an American World War II movie. He was so Chuck Connors. Oh, man. Yeah. I think if I'm recalling that the actor himself was actually Canadian. Well, he did a great job sounding like an American general from that time period. He was actually in several pretty big movies later on. He he was in 2001 A Space Odyssey. He was? He was Dr. Ralph Halverson. And he was in Superman 3 and Superman 4. He was the US president in Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> There you go. I was really struck by the fact that based on how we had already mentioned how kind of clunky they move so they don't look threatening, I realized how important it was for them to be so much taller than everyone there. Oh, they were massive. It really would not have worked. It would have failed if they kept the Cybermen at like average height or just maybe a little bit shorter. It would have been, I don't think it would have worked at all. I know we'll get there in about five years time, but there's a Sylvester (laughs) McCoy story called Silver Nemesis where the Cybermen meet a uh, a group of effectively nazis the nazis describe the cybermen as the the supermen you know the the mythical creatures from from nazi lore and and just the size and these glinting warriors i mean you can kind of see the imagery even if it wasn't necessarily intended at this point in time with the height and so on i know how previously we've called out certain things in hallways during the dalek movie and the <laughs> Oh, what were they? The lava lamps. So did anyone else think that, I'm, I assume it was a phone, looked kind of like a marital aid that was just sitting there on the desk? <laughs> I'm, I'm just wondering. I also especially noticed it in the animated fourth episode because it, it made an appearance there. So it, so. it wasn't just I'm, me that thought it was a dildo at first and was wondering what that was doing. No, <laughs> no, we're on the same page. Is that was that what they used to plug the servo panel in episode three? <laughs> oh my god! Maybe. <sighs> so episode three. <laughs> episode three, which starts with the doctor passing out. So Hartnell is actually sick rather than just taking a vacation this time. Yeah, and this is where I felt the foreshadowing started because there really wasn't anything in episodes one and two that really led to anything. Yeah, it felt like a regular serial for one and two. Yeah, I think his illness was so convenient for narrative reasons at this time. There wouldn't have been any of that foreshadowing with the Doctor struggling with having his energy drained by the planet if he hadn't fallen ill, because he would have just carried on and most of the lines that Ben had would have been William Hartnell's lines. Serendipity there. Also, when you mentioned that Ben got some of his lines, that then all of a sudden made sense because I'm like, Ben all of a sudden was very intelligent and I just was like cool they're give- they're making Ben useful and then it's like oh <laughs> well that's why he's useful unexpected scientific genius <laughs> <laughs> Don you already mentioned Doctor Strange Love this for me is where General Cutler really goes Doctor Strange Love and he's determined to use the Z bomb to destroy Mondas regardless of its impact on Earth right full on crazy and as I said it, it, if he hadn't been kind of a dick to begin with i think his descent into madness would have been a lot more understandable once it was his son out there hey we didn't write this no (laughs) 
One thing I, I found slightly bizarre is if the Snowcat base was meant to be mission command for the space missions, why the hell do they also have a doomsday weapon? You don't have a doomsday weapon? <laughs> I've got three in my closet. You need one? <laughs> yeah, I'd love All right, one, please. <laughs> it just seems so weird. It kind of goes back to a statement I made where at that time, a lot of scientific things were being done side by side with military. I mean, that's done today anyway. A lot of your R&D coming from military. I guess the only way that you could explain it is just to say, well, it was a scientific and military operation. And that's how you have to explain it, because otherwise, yes, you're right. It doesn't make any sense. They're also in this slightly weird situation on the base where everyone realizes that Cutler is completely unhinged, but no one is quite willing to call him out and say you can't do this he's pseudo in charge he's making (laughs) he's he's making the decisions that it seems no one else was willing to make some of those decisions in fact he's he's in charge because no one else is going to step up last episode we had polly pretty much losing the argument with the cyberman over emotions and here you have cutler proving their point his emotions have got him so riled up and so unhinged but he's willing to destroy half of Earth in the hope of saving his son. Yeah, and he's also pulling a gun on anyone that even mildly disagrees with him. Yeah, this is really hammering it home. Yeah, and another reason why people wouldn't want to say no to him is because he will take action against it. So I really liked that Polly was able to figure out the, the one person who'd probably be able to do something. So she gets him to the side and she's like, hey... Come on, you gotta know something. There's some way out of this, right? Isn't there? And he's like, well, I guess we could do this other thing. So with Polly's skills of saying, convincing them, hey, I can make you coffee. That means I get to stay here. And oh, that means I can talk to people. While Polly doesn't get to do a lot, she at least moved that plot along. And it felt like it was coming from her character instead of someone else's lines just with her name crossed out. (laughs) Exactly. I have a question because I just now I remember it it struck me as being kind of weird. There's that one. I think it's at it's in episode two, maybe three, where Ben kills one of the Cybermen. Yes. Isn't he in the Navy? He's basically a, a soldier of some sort. Yeah, he's he's in the Navy. He didn't seem to handle that very well. <laughs> maybe, it's, maybe it's the first thing he's ever killed. I mean, as in, in the Navy, maybe he's like just a. I mean, do we actually know what he does in the Navy? Maybe he's just a cook or something. I mean, we know he's on on ships, but again, yeah. I think 1960s Royal Navy, they don't see a lot of hand to hand combat. He's probably never looked at someone whilst pulling the trigger. Even if he's in a combat role on a ship, he's on the bridge firing a weapon or something like that. I mean, that, that reaction doesn't necessarily surprise me because it's probably the first time he's had, he's had to look a creature in the eye as he's killed it. It just seemed really out of the basis of his character for me. The, what was also interesting for me is before really looking into him kind of like getting the doctor's lines, I kind of glossed over it because I had a friend who was in the Navy who was a nuclear engineer. So I was just like, Oh, yeah, it totally makes sense that someone from a ship could, you know, someone in the Navy could know all that stuff. And I'm like, well, that's only if you were a nuclear engineer. (laughs) I don't think that's Ben. So my explanation in my head did not work at all. But hey, it gave him something actually to do. I'm actually curious if that 
was going to be a majority of the doctor's lines, then what was Ben doing in the original script? He was probably locked up. <laughs> yeah, ent- he was taking a nap the entire time. My question is, like in the original story, if the doctor was going to be messing with the servo panel, was it the doctor who got yeeted off the platform by cut the platform <laughs> by Cutler? <laughs> <laughs> because i mean that right there was probably what caused the regeneration because damn that's why i called in sick like yeah i'm not doing this nope <laughs> <laughs> I, I i don't know what it was but that, that that stunt really you know caught me and i think maybe that just is another example to the audience of like hey everybody this cutler guy he really just you know does not care and he's do anything he'll throw people off of platforms and we're not really used to seeing that kind of action in in the television stories at this point it was overly aggressive i mean everything he did was overly aggressive true ben's attempted sabotage leads into so much tension towards the end of the episode you know we're heading towards the rocket launch and has he successfully sabotaged it has he not and then at the very end they give us that on-screen overlaid countdown which ramps that right up. I think that was another thing that was so well done. I agree. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to touch on one more thing in episode three. Okay. I would. I guess he's the president of the Space Command, the Frenchman in Geneva. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, this is a deep cut, but as I was watching, and they call the weapon uh, the Z-bomb. There's an old MST3K joke, very, very old. But the fact that he's a French person, I was waiting the entire time with this conversation with the Cutler for him to call it Zibom. And I would have just giggled and laughed a lot. But that's all. I thought you were going to talk about how after we've had the Cybermen basically isolated a snowcap base, suddenly one shows up there in that previous area that we've just been talking to. Which is a nice segue into episode four. (laughs) (laughs) Did everyone watch the animation or did anyone do the recon or the narrated audio? I did all three because I am stuck at home, (laughs) so I had time. I'm used to being stuck at home, so my time is filled, so I watched the animated reconstruction, except I did watch the last few minutes of the BBC recon for the actual footage. I watched only the recon. Oh, okay. That was unexpected. I just felt like I wanted to go that direction. Sometimes like for the, I feel like the animation works well for regular stories, but for something major like a regeneration where you want to try to catch some emotional nuance, uh, the animation doesn't really work in that way. Makes sense. I agree with the actual regeneration. However, I thought that the animation, like it had with a Reign of Terror, it really helped me actually visualize what was happening because since we got those visuals, because I watched the animation last and I realized that there were things that I missed because I just couldn't, I couldn't, I didn't know what was going on. All of a sudden I was watching the animation. And I was like, oh, okay. That's what actually happened. I agree with the emotional bits that the reconstruction with the, visuals that they had was was good but from a plot perspective i i needed the animation that's fair i've seen the the reconstruction so many times i mean it was the official bbc reconstruction that was released on the 2001 vhs version that was my first experience with the story 19 years ago and christ that makes me feel old (laughs) i got given it for my 13th birthday 
so I, I'd seen that often enough where I didn't feel like I needed to see it again. So for once, I actually watched the animation. So I, I kind of saw what you meant, Julie. Let's talk about the actual episode. Of course, the rocket malfunctions. Was it ever going to do anything else? That certainly would have been a brave <laughs> turn of events. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it would have been interesting if it had launched, but then when it hit the atmosphere, if it just died. Yep. By the time the doctor shows up, he is full of righteous anger. and Hartnell is really getting to give a phenomenal final performance. I love it. I love when he gets into that, that righteous anger and he just, oh, it's a beautiful thing. There are so many nice little Doctor moments in this. I mean, he talks about this old body of mine is wearing a bit thin. When they're being carted off to Cyberman's uh, Cybermen's spaceship, he very calmly and sweetly turns around to Polly and says, don't forget your coat, I don't want you to get cold. We're used to all of the dramatic Doctor last words and speeches, and his last words are, keep warm. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it's the low-played subtlety that really is effective here instead of something bombastic. Yeah. I think the resolution of the main Cybermen plot is fundamentally fairly disappointing. <laughs> oh, yes. Absolutely. Do nothing, it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is what we always criticize the historicals for. The same thing would have happened if they hadn't shown up. I, I think the only thing that changed is you might have had Cutler launching the, the Z-bomb. After a while, the Cybermen become just more like side-dressing and that the real villain of the entire piece is Cutler. Right. He's more of a threat because he might actually actively do something that could harm a lot of people. While the Cybermen have harmed some people, if you just hold them off long enough, then they just will fall apart literally it's like oh hey look these radiation fuel rod things like we'll just hold these out and oh look they died it seems like such a cop-out they they shot a few of them too like, though didn't they because they managed to steal a weapon yeah they got a weapon yeah if, if you watch the animation a few of them were shot but a few of them were affected enough by the radiation that they just fell over and died the voice acting for when they get affected by the radiation is hilarious though that whimpery sound they make very funny and we'll hear a lot more of that as we get more Cybermen stories. The star of the show in this episode is the resolution. After Mondas has blown up, Cutler's son survives, but then Ben rescues Polly and the Doctor from the Cybermen ship, and barely conscious the Doctor kind of moans it's far from being all over, and they all end up in the TARDIS. And let's take a minute to talk about what happens there, because it's just this loud cacophony of sound and what the hell is going on can you imagine what it was like watching this in 1966 and not knowing what was coming i like very much how at the very beginning he has locked them out of the tardis which is something that immediately puts the audience in a perspective of okay let's focus just on the doctor let's realize that he is separate from these people that he is and he has mystery all of his own it reinvigorates what we had come to have forgotten about him through so many years because he's been part of the gang, so to speak. But this is kind of like, hey, everybody, you thought you knew the doctor, but just remember, he has a whole lot of mystery that you have forgotten about. Yeah. What I liked about like the cacophony and the noise and the TARDIS kind of going haywire, while obviously at the time they didn't have this idea that the, the TARDIS kind of was a being all of, of its own, 
but it fits very well into that idea that, you know, the TARDIS and the Doctor have this sort of relationship of sorts and that the TARDIS would go haywire while all this is happening to the Doctor. So it's just nice to see that that was actually true from the beginning. And I think to that point, Julie, you know, we've seen that the TARDIS try and do things in times of grave danger in the past. I mean, think back to the edge of destruction. When something weird or bad is happening, the TARDIS kind of takes on a mind of its own. And that's what it's doing here. The, the switches are moving on their own. If we think of it that way, is did the TARDIS let Ben and Polly in and not the Doctor letting them in? And that's something I don't think we'll be able to ever know unless this episode gets returned. That's true. I mean, they do animate him flicking some switches, but you don't really know exactly what the intention was. Right. I like to think it was the TARDIS. I do too. Same here. I think that that would be uh, better narratively. And then we are, of course, left with that final scene of the bright white light and the face changing. If I was watching this in 1966 and I didn't have 57 years of lore at this point to look back on, I would think, what the hell did I just watch? What just <laughs> happened? Yeah. Yeah. And just to kind of touch very quickly on that, you know, nowadays when they get new actors, they have this huge announcement and they're like, oh, so-and-so is going to be the next doctor. They they didn't do that at all, right? Back in the day. There was a little bit. I mean, it, it wasn't quite the front page, you know, but there would have been an article or two. Okay. But also back then in popular culture, I doubt that you know, the majority of television viewers would be so up on casting news back then. So they probably had no idea this was coming. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at. The Radio Times, which was the main UK TV guide back in the day, they, I think, did a month at a time. So depending on where this fell in the month, <laughs> the next <laughs> couple of episodes would have shown Doctor Who, Patrick Troughton, potentially. Mm. I think it was known it was happening, but again, no one really knew how, no one knew the mechanism. I think we'll probably talk more about that when we come to do The Power of the Daleks and, and start looking at the aftermath of this. Again, I think people would have just been like, what the hell? That's just about the end of our discussion on the story, so we move on to the metrics. Firstly, slight minor correction. Our quarry query count. We previously said that the Savages was the very first count. We were wrong. Friend of the podcast Nathan Laws has since reminded us that the very first use of a quarry was, in fact, in the Dalek invasion of Earth. So, Nathan, you can be assured mm. that I have updated my spreadsheet accordingly. Nerd alert. <laughs> and we'll reflect this in future roundups. Speaking of quarry query, let's start there. Any quarries used? No. no. I would think not, no. Any nominations for the camp count? I mean, I think General Cutler was very over the top. Over the top, but not in a campy way. Yeah. Okay. What about the Italian? Mamma mia! I want to. I want to add him just just because I, I I don't want him to be forgotten. You know, several <laughs> you know, in in season roundup or doctor or or the first doctor roundup. I don't want him to be forgotten. All right. So one one points the camp count for the Italian. Simplify Tito. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. So those are our metrics. Next, we move on to scoring. And Julie, you are first up this time around. Overall, I enjoyed it, especially coming off of the smugglers. Oh, dear God. We didn't touch much upon the music. And that's just because, again, the music was stock. So I didn't really have any feelings on that. But they did some very 
interesting things. I really enjoyed how they did some of the visualizations so that the new beginning opener and the, the credits were kind of fun. The plot moved very well. The limited use of the Cyberman was what they should have done. Glad they did that. Given that the doctor got sick, he didn't have as much to do in this one, but it did give opportunities to Ben uh, to step up. So whether or not that was supposed to happen, I'm not going to hold it against him. It was just nice to see the companion helping out there. And overall, I I enjoyed it and I'm going to be very sad. So I'm going to give it, I'll give it seven out of 10 radiation fuel rods. Riley, over to you. I have to correct myself from earlier. I misspoke. Uh, it was both The Thing from Another World and John Carpenter's The Thing and this episode all take place in the South Pole in Antarctica. I misspoke earlier and said that they were one in the North Pole, one in the South Pole, but they're both in the South Pole. Moving on. I really enjoyed it. It was, to touch on some things that I hadn't mentioned previously, one thing I noticed that was very strange is that it had a lot of the editing, a lot of weird sudden cuts especially in the first two episodes at the end of scenes, it seemed very jarring. It just didn't seem to go smoothly. But let's talk about the positive things. Production value, I thought was really, really good. They did a great job of making things look like near future international space command kind of thing. And the cyber introduction is wonderful. It's iconic. The plot works well enough to keep moving, but it definitely does crumble as we have questions about it. But if you enjoy the ride and if you can forget those things, then the story did what it was supposed to do. It distracted you. Overall, I kind of grade on a curve because when it comes to like a doctor regeneration story, I always feel like writing endings is very, very difficult. So anytime that you can watch that and not feel like it was completely screwed up is a positive. They definitely did not screw up. Could it have been better in parts? Absolutely. It was an entertaining and fun. Yes, it was. Totally worthwhile to watch. So I will give it seven and a half out of 10 Mamma Mia's. <laughs> All right, Don, over to you. I think most of what I was going to say has already been covered. Overall, I really enjoyed this story. It does have some things that I wish were done better. I, I really wish that since this is Hartnell's final story that he had had more to do and was more involved and could have really gone out on a heroic note. Unfortunately, just because of the way it was written and his own failing health, that wasn't possible. That said, I still really enjoyed it. I, I like the Cybermen. I find them to be an interesting idea and kind of terrifying in their own right. I really kind of wish that, like Anthony said, that the character of the general could have been a bit more humanized in the earlier portion of it so we could really see him degrade. But that said, it's still a, a really, really great serial. So I'm going to give it seven and a half dildo looking telephones out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> Marvelous. OK, so that leaves it with me and... Again, I think a lot of what I want to say has been said. I, I've always enjoyed this story. When I first saw it, it had a kind of near mythic status. And as a 13-year-old, I, I loved it. And as a 32-year-old, I still really, really enjoy this one. I think the Cybermen themselves are incredibly creepy. I love that original design, the cloth mask, the bare hands, the, the plastic. It really gives an idea of, of of a race that has really clung to survival and hasn't necessarily had all of the metal that later iterations would give us. Those blank faces and the sing-songy voices, they are just so well realized to me. I've I've always loved that. And then we talked about how effectively they win the argument against Polly on emotions. And then General Cutler 
proves their point. I think that's so well scripted. That's not to say that this story doesn't have its faults. I find the the, the structure of two episodes with Cybermen, two episodes without, it's a little repetitive and formulaic. Hartnell falling ill was very unfortunate. It definitely took away, as as I think others have said, from this being his final story. He really should have been in all four episodes, and the last episode that exists of his tenure, he's not even in. If we had episode four, obviously that would be different, but we, we can't see that, and it's disappointing. Overall, it's as I said, it's one I really, really enjoy, and so I'm going to give it seven and a half cloth face masks out of ten. That gives this a story average for the four of us of 7.38, which is the highest of the season so far, over double the average of the smugglers. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. With that, we are just about out of time. We do have one item from the mail. To remind everyone, we record a little ahead of time. So items in the mail are normally from around four-ish episodes ago. Bill Lemond emailed us to say how much he enjoyed our episode on the gunfighters and that we highlighted his very favorite things about the story. So, Bill, thank you for listening. We appreciate you. We'll be back next time with a special episode wrapping up the first Doctor's era. And then in two episodes' time, we will return to discuss the aftermath of this story. In the meantime, all of our previous episodes are available on your favorite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watches4D please do email us at watches4d at gmail.com. We do enjoy reading out your emails. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe. Please do leave us a review and please do leave us a rating. All three of those things really do help the show. Thank you very much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watches in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippeck, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, yeeted by cutlery, was recorded on Wednesday the 1st of April 2020. And always remember, phrases like clipothic existentialist horror don't slip off the tongue particularly easily. Practice them a few times if you're going to use phrases like that.